You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Mark chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles with you, we do, but you'd rather be in a hard copy of the text, there are um, Bibles that you can find under seats throughout the sanctuary, so grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one as a gift from us um, so that you have access to scriptures at home for yourself. Um, Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, reading through 22 through 35. So when you get there, if you're able, would you please stand as we read God's word together? And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, we want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're really glad you're here, and we really hope you enjoy yourself with us this morning. So like Lauren said, we've been working through the book of Mark, and we have so much ground to cover this morning. I really want to jump right in. But before I do, what I'd love to do is pray for us and to ask the Lord to speak to us by the power of the Spirit through his word. So if you will bow your heads, I'll pray. Father, we come to you first with thanksgiving. What a joy it is, what a privilege it is, what an honor it is to gather together as your children, to sing songs of adoration and exaltation and worship to your name. We thank you that your word's been preserved for us, that we can submit ourselves to it, and that through it we can know you more deeply that our affections will be affected and that we can love you more dearly by the truth of your word. And we do ask now, my God, that you would speak to us, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, make our hearts fertile ground that you might sow the seed of truth and bear forth the 30, 60, 100-fold harvest that you've promised according to your will. And of course, as we ask every week, my God, we ask again this morning that you would meet the needs that each of us have individually and the needs we have as a church corporately. Things that we know, things that we don't know, my God. Speak, we ask now, that we may hear in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So you've probably noticed over the course of uh, the last three chapters, there seems to be a theme in the life of Jesus so far. And that theme is something like this. Uh, Jesus has a lot of, let's say, robust dialogue with the scribes and the Pharisees. They seem to be the ones who keep coming back to him 
and keep having taking issue with his sermons, taking issue with his actions, taking issue with his ministry, and really just taking issue with him generally. And they find different ways to accuse him, different ways to try to trip him up, different ways to uh, bring false accusations. But this is the last culminating showdown, at least for a few chapters. We're not going to hear again from the scribes or the Pharisees for a few chapters after this one, because this one is kind of a solidifying end to this first opening salvo of Jesus's ministry in that the scribes bring an, let's say an ultimate accusation against the life and ministry of Jesus. They say something that is so severe, so dark that Jesus has to confront them with a dire warning. And this is where you get the passage of the unforgivable eternal sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that they were either actually exercising that or they were on very rocky ground. And so that's what happens here. What they say is, again, taking the place of the accuser, they say, Jesus, you cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So by Satan's power is how you're casting out Satan's demons. And in order for us to understand this text, and not just this portion in particular, but really the rest of this stanza, we have to start with this theological understanding of the world that both Jesus held and the New Testament writers held and all the Old Testament writers held and most Christians up until maybe the modern century in the modern last century always held, but we have lost. And that is how I'm gonna describe as the idea of two kingdoms. Now, two kingdoms, I don't mean this in the same sense that maybe you've heard of two kingdom theology and this is an idea that there is the kingdom of uh, Christ, which is the church, and the kingdom of the world, which is the state. That's not what I mean. I want to go higher than that. I mean, I want to leave that debate for another time. The two kingdoms I'm referring to, which the New Testament constantly mentions, are one, the kingdom of Satan, or the kingdom of darkness, and two, the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of light. Now, starting with the kingdom of darkness, or the kingdom of Satan, the Bible describes it as the whole of humanity, from birth, under the guilt of sin, and the deception of Satan himself, that, that this entire uh, cosmos is underneath this penalty, this deception, this darkness. And this kingdom is often referred to in the New Testament as simply the world. You'll see that there is enmity between Christ and the world. Anyone who is a friend of the world has enmity with God. Now, it's not always this way. For instance, one of the most famous New Testament verses is John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is not saying that God so loved the kingdom of darkness that he gave his only son. It's talking about how he loved every human being that lived on the face of the earth. So it's not always this, but most of the time you read in your New Testament the title, the world, especially when it's spoken of in antipathy towards God, it means this, the kingdom of darkness. And then many times in the scriptures, you'll see the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of light or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And this refers to the whole Christian family that Jesus came to adopt. This, this whole group of people that were born again by the Spirit, redeemed by Christ through his blood, adopted into the family by the Father through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ as the one and only true and rightful King of kings, Lord of lords. This kingdom's often referred to in the New Testament. Jesus tells parables about it. He speaks about him being the one who's come to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand and he's brought that kingdom. Now, I wanna say I'm using this language not to indicate that Satan is a king of any sort, okay? And especially not that Jesus and Satan are basically in a battle uh, 
in opposition one to, an, one to another, that there's any equal footing there. Uh, none of that's true. No, my goal is that we must understand the world as it is and the world as it is understood by the Lord Jesus, understood by the apostles, understood by the patriarchs, understood by the prophets and really understood by every Christian, again, up until really modern times. And that is that there are domains of spiritual authority that exist and they impact life at an everyday level. Satan is a ruler and he is a ruler of the domain of darkness. Now this is under the authority of God. He's not a ruler that does whatever he pleases. The oldest book in your Bible is the book of Job where he has to come up before God and ask permission to even hinder Job in any way. And yet the Bible does record that Satan's been apportioned some authority by God and that not only Satan himself, but there's a, some sort of kingdom of darkness where these minions have, the minions of Satan have authority as well. Still, it's really important that we know that Satan himself does fancy himself a king. And this is why all of the rulers that we see in the Bible and since then that are evil and wicked in the kingdom of darkness have always manifested themselves in this dark king motif, whether it be Pharaoh or later on whether it be King Nebuchadnezzar until he repents or later on you see it with the Assyrian kings, or later on you see it with the Caesars, what you'll always see is this manifestation of the dark, evil king that rules and has dominion and enslaves. And this is because this is how Satan fancies himself. He's a, he fancies himself to be a rival to God, to be a rival to his kingdom. And of course we know that this is all folly, and yet it's true that he believes it, and therefore he acts in accordance now, the reason I say all this is this entire interchange is totally nonsensical unless you embrace this idea, unless you embrace this worldview. And I have to say that we have not embraced this worldview, okay? Now, I wanna, I wanna read to you four different New Testament verses, and I do it so that you see I'm not just making this up. This is not just me with my own, you know, charismaniac ideals. Let's look at the Bible. So let's go Acts 26, verses 16 through 18. This is Paul recounting his conversion experience and he's recounting the words of God to him. So this is the Lord speaking and he says to Paul, but rise and stand upon your feet for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen, which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn, listen, this is how Paul describes the conversion experience from the mouth of the Lord, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So very quickly, we would probably in our materialistic sense think, yes, we'll take darkness to light. We will make that symbolic. We'll grab a Thomas Kincaid painting and say, that's what conversion's like. But notice Paul's words. He doesn't start, stop with that. He then says, what it looks like to go from darkness to light is what it looks like to go from the clutches of Satan to the family of God. That's spiritual language. You can't get away from that spiritual language, okay? You know this because when your aunt starts talking about the devil at Thanksgiving, you get weirded out. You can't avoid it. You know, you're okay when she's talking about the Bible. She starts talking about other stuff, brings out her tambourine, and you mosey to the other room even though you're a Christian, you know, because you can't avoid. That's weird. And Paul was totally unafraid of that kind of language. It's so integral to his theology. You don't believe me, we'll continue. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Listen to how Paul describes salvation. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, realm, authoritative realm of darkness. And where did he transfer us to? To the kingdom of his beloved son. In case you didn't catch, he has put these two as total polar opposites. There is the kingdom of Christ and there is the domain of darkness. And salvation is the transfer from one to the other by the power of Jesus Christ, the true king, who has authority to do so. Which is why when he shows up resurrected before he ascends, he tells his disciples, all authority has been given to me. Now you can go and make disciples. Until that point, they could not make disciples. They could not do anything. But Christ has the authority and he apportions it to them. Now they can go. But he says, wait until what? Until the spirit shows up and gives you this power to be able to do it. Because if you go out there and try to make this happen, it's going to be like storming the fires of hell with a water gun. You're not going to have a very good successful job. Let's continue though. Listen to how Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter two. Here's another one. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following this world, the course of this world. There's that kingdom language again. But then listen to this. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's another one that you can't explain away with materialistic thinking. Who is the prince of the power of the air that Paul's talking about that clearly runs the course of this world? Well, we know this. It's the one who promised Jesus that if he would just bow, he would give him the whole world. The one who's been apportioned a certain amount of authority over the darkness of this world by God that Jesus intends to crush under his feet. That's what the Bible says, at least. Lastly, in case you really still don't believe me, this is Revelation chapter 11. Listen to verse 15. These are the angels rejoicing in heaven at the seventh trumpet blast. And they're speaking about what they see as a culmination of what God's done in the scriptures. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and said, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Notice, the kingdom of the world in darkness is done, and now the kingdom of our Christ reigns in its place forever. That is what the Christian believes so this is what I'm saying. This is not just Old Testament. This is, we have always believed this. There is a king that has come and is coming and there's a spiritual reality to that. Now this is deeply rooted, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Every writer of your New Testament believed an Old Testament worldview. And by that, I simply mean this. The writers of the New Testament believed the Old Testament. And I would challenge you, we should come back to this. We should stop trying to rearrange the Old Testament to make it more understandable to the modern here. And we should just simply read it for what it says, that it's true. And be unashamed about the truth therein, because that's how the New Testament writers wrote it. They never said, and I apologize that this is not, you know, as the, as the new geologists have found, that these carbon datings would not prove Genesis chapters. They never said that. Never. Peter just said, God flooded the world. That's it. God flooded the world, and this corresponds to baptism, and here's why. He didn't say, God flooded a regional area of the, you know. We have to get back to just embracing the Old Testament for what it says. And here's what the Old Testament, Old Testament Israelites, as, as well as every other nation, believed something like this. They believed that nations were ruled by earthly kings, but that above that, that there were God, little g gods, that ruled these nations that the gods or the spirits possessed the authority over that realm. 
and that they apportioned that authority to the earthly kings to carry out their will. That's what most nations believed. You can see this, just read ancient history. You don't even have to read the Bible to see this. This is just factually how people believed things went. If you just read uh, ancient Greek mythology, um, this is what they believed was really happening. Wars would happen. They They would believe that the spirits would inhabit their warriors, okay? This is what they believed. And the conquering of kingdoms was seen as the conquering of that people's gods or over the gods of a fallen kingdom. Now, in case you think that I'm getting way out in left field, listen to what God himself says in Exodus chapter 12. He says this about Egypt. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. That's the last plague, by the way. Both man and beast and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So God himself says, even more than the executing of this judgment was over the Pharaoh or the children of Egypt, he says, I'm executing judgment on the gods of Egypt so that they would know that I am what? I am Yahweh. I am the I am. I am the only true God. There is none besides me. He wants the gods to be judged. Why is God speaking of them in this way? Because this is the worldview of the Old Testament. Okay, I'm not done. 1 Samuel 4, verses 5 through 9. This is a moment where the children of Israel have gone into battle against Philistia, who, by the way, had their own gods. They had different gods, multiple gods. One was called Dagon. Multiple gods they worshipped, okay? And Israel has already lost a battle to them, and they're figuring, why are we losing? We're Israel. God's with us. What should we do? We'll bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battle with us. Now, little do they know that they were experiencing the destruction that God had promised them for worshiping idols. So now they think that if they just bring the ark in, like it's a token of their love for God, but they don't have any love in their heart for God, that God's going to fight for them. Like, like many of us pray, you know, like many of us pray, but we don't really love God, but God's like our battle coin. He's like, now we can go. Don't let it rain today, God, because I have fun things to do, you know, but we haven't really honored God. Okay. That's what they do. Now, I want you to listen and watch how Philistia responds to this, though. The Bible says this, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned the Ark of the Lord had come up to the camp, they said, this is rubbish. No. Is that what they said? They said, this means nothing. No, that's not what they say. They say what? The Philistines were afraid, and they said, a God has come into the camp And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become a slave to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. They're terrified. You know why they're terrified? Because they know that this is the God. Now, they're all mixed up because they're pluralists. They believe in multiple gods. So they say it's many gods or one God. They don't know. They just know whoever is the God of the Hebrews destroyed the greatest kingdom of the world up until that point. They didn't think it was Moses. They were not materialists. They didn't think that it was because Israelites were good warriors or had good tactics or had good espionage. You know what we know the Israelites didn't have? Good espionage. They sent 12 spies, 10 of them were terrible spies. They were scared, okay? They knew that it was a spiritual battle and the Philistine warriors said, we are going to be destroyed. This this kind of worldview should change the way you see the famous David and Goliath fight as more, you know, it's not a Rocky versus, you know, Drago or anything. This is something much deeper than that. 
Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 43. This is the Goliath fight. The Philistine, Goliath, said to David, am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David, how? By his gods. The Philistine believed that his gods were empowering him, that he was coming in the name of his gods and therefore he would destroy David. This is their worldview. You cannot argue with it. Now watch this. You may say, yeah, but that's the pagans. David doesn't think that. Well, let's just read what David thinks. The Philistine said to David, come to me. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Now notice, David too does not believe that Goliath is defying him, but defying his God. It was a spiritual battle. He knew this. Keep going. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down. I'll cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the, Lord, all the earth may know what? That there's a David in Israel? That there's a God in Israel? And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is whose? Israel's, the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David believed it too. The Israelites just believed that Yahweh was the God of all gods, that every other God must bow. They were all demons. That's what the Israelites believed. Said, yeah, you have your gods, they're just demons. But then there's the one true God whom all of your gods bow, and that's how they operated. Now I need you to understand this, and I'm gonna say this, and I know that it some of you may not believe it. Jesus also believes this. He teaches this, okay? I want you to understand that your grandmother, who you thought was very charismatic and crazy, that said things like, the devil's after me, sweetheart, because my coffee spilled. She is closer to the truth than you and I are. Way closer. You and I think we, we only spill coffee because, you know, I don't know, we're, we're clumsy. You know, we think only bad things happen because, you know, all of these rational decisions. no. That is not the biblical worldview. Now, I'm not saying that you spilt your coffee because Satan did it. I'm saying the fact that you don't think Satan exists is an absolute travesty of the Christian life because he feasts on you and on me because we don't believe this worldview. We're way too rationalistic for this. We think, oh, it's all symbolism. The Bible's wonderful because it symbolizes the dark and the light. Yeah, it's, it's symbolic in the same way that if a, a lion decided to take you and start eating you, that's symbolic too. That's how symbolic it is. Spiritually, you can be feasted upon. You may be right now. Jesus believed this. When he saw the woman with the issue of blood, he said, this woman has been in chains of darkness, bound by Satan for 38 years. That's what he said. He didn't say she needed a better doctor. That's real. Now you may be saying, what are you saying? If I'm sick, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying necessarily that you're sick because you're demon-possessed. I'm saying that we have taken away the spiritual connotations of the scripture entirely in order to develop a materialistic world, and guess what we did in turn? We made man God. We just, we just said the heavens are shut up. We, you know, the, the heavens are, we have a deistic God up there. Maybe he turned to the clock. He sent his son. After that, he let us do our thing. Let me tell you, God hasn't stopped dealing with the nations as he did then. The Old Testament writers believed that you will be, go under the authority of the gods that you submit to in worship. So if a nation subdues you, they believed you were then put under the authority of that nation's gods. 
So in the Old Testament, Israel is promised that if they disobey the commands of God and they willingly worship the false gods of the nations, God promises them he will judge them by giving them over to those nations in the physical. In other words, what they act out in the spiritual, God says, I will give you over to in the physical. I didn't make this up. I'm just going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 28, this is what it says. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be your your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Skipping down to verse 36, he then predicts what Israel will do. Watch this. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you've set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. He says, you will abandon me. You will serve gods of wood and stone. And watch what will happen. And you shall become a whore and a proverb, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. He goes on, by the way, and he just basically says, here's how bad it's going to get. But in essence, this is what God said to them in Deuteronomy. When you choose to worship the false gods, Israel, I will turn you over to them and say, have your fill of the gods you want. And the result will be destruction. That ultimately God will give them what they're after. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that's exactly what happens. Now, so let's go to Mark 3. So what is Jesus doing in this text with that worldview? Well, let's, let's think about this. Jesus arrives to his people, the children of Israel. And what are they? Under the authority of Rome. They are under the authority of, if you don't know Roman history, the pantheon of gods, little g gods that they worshiped. Much like Egypt, the Caesar becomes like the Pharaoh, who's kind of a demigod, has his image on all the coins. Caesar Augustus calling himself the son of God at one point because he was the son of Julius Caesar, the famous one. And because they disobeyed the voice of the Lord, God had given Israel over to the worship of the gods they wanted. But Jesus shows up and he's got this new message. What does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. And immediately when he preaches, Who is the first person to recognize him for who he is? A demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Says, I know who you are. What are you here for? The people don't recognize it. The scribes and the Pharisees certainly don't want him to be who he says he is. But the demon-possessed man says, "Uh, what what are you here for? Jesus shows up binding the strong man, casting out demons, all these minions of the false gods that are oppressing the people, he starts doing business with them, saying, you're out, you're out, you're out. And it's in that context that the scribes finally get so fed up with it that they say, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebul. Now, I wish I could, we could spend a long time talking about who Beelzebul is, but just in a nutshell, this goes back to Baal, one of the famous false gods of the scriptures. And he's saying, this, Jesus serves Baal. That's how he's doing what he's doing. Jesus' response is, how can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus says, if a man is to be robbed, he first has to be bound up by another person. Then once he's bound, another person takes away all of his goods and goes back to his own house. But he says, the man cannot bind himself up and then rob himself. How can he carry away the goods if he's bound? And even if he could figure out a way to do it, To whose house will he carry away the goods to if he's robbing his own house, the only house he owns? Jesus says, this is nonsensical. He says, instead, that what? I came to plunder Satan's house. That's what he says. He says, I've come 
to bind the strong man of this earth. The only one who could bind the strong man of the world, the prince of the power of the air, is Christ Jesus who did so. Now here is one of the most wonderful, amazing, I wish I could find uh, you know, a source of words to describe this to you. His mission is to plunder the kingdom of darkness. They know it now and they're very threatened by it. So what they do is try to kill him. They do kill him, which ensures his victory. It's wonderful. It's the gospel. They conspire. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he looks to them. Peter says, you're never gonna take my Lord. And Jesus says, no. He cuts the servant of the high priest's ear off. Jesus heals the man's ear. And he looks to them and says, this is your hour in the power of darkness. I give the kingdom of darkness one hour to do what? To kill me. And then he rises from the dead and says, all authority has been given to me. He wins. The very thing that they were adamant to do to kill him was the very thing that ensured his victory. And Satan's kingdom of darkness has been being plundered since. And this is the gospel of the kingdom. Now, what should we do with this text? Well, I think I want to start with saying this first. And I can't say this emphatically enough. If you've been at Providence for a little while, you're probably recognizing courts beating the drum on this whole, we're in a spiritual realm too much. And I want to say, I know it, okay? I know I'm doing it, but here's why I'm doing it. The battle that you and I are engaged in is a spiritual battle. It's so essential that we reclaim this, brothers and sisters. If we keep living as though it's only physical, we will be perpetually frustrated and we'll be engaged in constant vain pursuits of this world that will never satisfy us. We'll be being feasted on spiritually, not knowing why we're depressed. If I'm a Christian, why is that I don't experience joy? And it's because we are only looking with earthly eyes. The Bible tells us that when we're born again, God gives us supernatural, spiritual eyes. He says the natural man cannot discern the things of God, but the spiritual man by the spirit of God can. And many of us have been given that gift and then immediately put on a blindfold to it. I do not want that for us. So I can't say this enough. Notice that when Jesus is accused here of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, he doesn't say, that's just nonsense, ancient, archaic thought. Jesus doesn't say, spiritual possession is not a thing. This must be a mental illness that you speak of. He doesn't do this. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you talk to me about Beelzebul, this fake entity. No, Jesus says, Actually, you're the one that's working with Beelzebul. He says, oh, it's real. It's more real than anything you could imagine. Jesus never mentions that it's not real. And we shouldn't either. We have to revive a sense of spiritual reality. We are in a cosmic battle. And listen to me, now I have good news for you. Jesus wins. He has won. When he says it is finished, we sang it earlier. When he says it's finished, Satan knew that he had lost. He is like a, he's like that tiger that's been declawed, okay? No power anymore. It's why men like Paul, who are flesh and blood men like you and me, could be bold enough to simply speak to the demons and cast them out, like Simon the magician in the book of Acts. So you think that Jesus is the only one that did this? Read the book of Acts. It's like they're It's like their primary ministry. It's like they don't have kids ministry, but they got demon casting out ministry, you know? Like they don't do homeless ministry unless they're gonna cast out demons from the homeless people. You know, it's crazy. And I'm not saying that all those things, I think we're wonderful to have all those things. Hope you're hearing me. Now, secondarily, we have to recognize who Jesus is engaged with for the last three 
or three chapters. And this is the, there's a dire nature to this warning from Jesus. He keeps arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite. They've been co-opted. And this warning for us should be something like, the so-called religious leaders of that day were so corrupted that they were willing to guide people directly away from Jesus as he was freeing them. That's how dark it got. And so Jesus said, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. And then he turned to the disciples and said, be warned, be aware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I say to you this morning, be aware of the leaven of the modern day scribes and Pharisees who sit in religious places and tell you that evil is good and good is evil, who try everything they can to get you to forget the cross and the gospel and offer you a million different ways of self-salvation. They are liars and they are liars with white robes. They are liars with places of prominence. Jesus is the king. The gospel is true. It is essential. And to give it up would be to give up everything. It would be to give up our birthright. Now, what about this passage that many of us know or know of about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What should we do with it? Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven of man, but not this, not the blasphemy of the Spirit. That's the eternal sin, he says. I think it was maybe six or seven years ago, I watched on YouTube, there was this, uh, there's this video that came out. These come out periodically. They like these edgy, transgressive videos. Okay, it was one of these that said, people would get on there and they'd say, I, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit and I am not afraid or something like that. And just kind of go from person to person. And I'll say, thankfully for them, this is not what I think blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Say this because of the evidence that it seems Jesus is giving us here. Jesus gives us an indication here because Mark records the reason Jesus said this to the scribes is because they had said he had an unclean spirit. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would be so adamant to say, you, you dare not say that the work of the Holy Spirit is a spirit of Beelzebub of Satan? Well, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, the Bible tells us, to testify to us that Christ is the solution for sin and our Savior, and to cause us to be born again by faith. That this is the work of the Spirit, among many others, but these are the primaries, right? Jesus says that the Spirit will come to testify to the world of sin and of righteousness and of Christ, and then cause us to be born again of the Spirit. So the Spirit both reveals to us our need and the Savior's provision, and then makes us new. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be something like this. The result of the hard-hearted rejection of God's spirit nudging you and drawing you so persistent and so perverse that God eventually turns a person over, listen to me, to have the fill of the idols they want. This happens many times in the Old Testament. Esau is a great example of this, but one that I want to mention is King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar is a Babylonian king whose grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar, who was humbled by God and repented, but his grandson did not learn the lesson. And Belshazzar decides that he's going to have an orgy, have a feast. He brings all these people of the palace around at night and they get all uh, hopped up, okay? And they're having a great time. And Belshazzar says, let's take it up a notch. He says, go get those implements of the temple. You know, those holy vessels, all that. Let's drink out of those. And so they do. And finally, as the scripture tells us that God will not be mocked, finally, I am assuming that they think it may be because they've had a little too much beverage that they start seeing a hand writing on the wall. Soon they realize that it's not just one of them seeing it, but all of them are seeing it. The, the handwriting on the wall says, many, many tekel you farsen, which they can't interpret. 
So they call the crazy haired prophet from Israel and he shows up and says, oh yeah, that means you've been measured, measured by God in the balances and you've been found wanting. This night your kingdom will be taken and you will die. And that's exactly what happens. Immediate judgment. Immediate. A line has been crossed. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is standing in the place of Goliath for long enough, cursing the God of Israel, that he permits you to have, he permits you to go over to the gods that you love. And guess what those gods do? And listen to me, all of them, all of them, all of them. There's not one of them that doesn't do this. They enslave you. These gods destroy you. Don't think it's just Egypt and that slavery. Have you noticed that every time Israel goes over to the other gods, they go into slavery? It's because there's not another option. These gods want death. These gods want destruction. These gods want to enslave you. It is only Christ who says, it is for freedom that I have set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Only Christ gives liberty. The other gods give you freedom that enslaves. <laughs> they say, be free, do what you want, don't care. And then you go into slavery. In the Old Testament, the kings cross the line and it all happens in an instance. But for us... The good news is this morning, if you feel the weight of this, if you say, man, I do not want to neglect and quench the Spirit's calling on my life, I want to say, you can be sure that you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and here's why, because the Spirit's still at work in you. That's why you feel that. Okay, so respond to him. Don't quench the spirit. If you find yourself so numb that nothing causes you to pause and consider, no call of coming back to God ever does anything for you, you should today, before you leave, say, God, do not let me fall into that kind of hardness. And that's ultimately what Jesus is saying to the scribes. He's saying, chapter after chapter, day after day, all you do is accuse me. All you do is know who I am, and you keep saying that I'm something else. You know that I've called you. I invite you, and you stiff arm me. I draw you near and you kick against me. I offer you life. You choose the opposite route. And he said, if you keep doing this, it will lead to death. That's his warning to the scribes. The only sin that is an eternal sin is finally and forever rejecting the spirit's drawing to trust Christ because every other little G God hates you. That's the eternal sin. And then it ends with this text. His mother and brothers are outside and they say, Eric preached this last week, but remember at the end of last week, his mother and brothers think that Jesus is a little crazy, okay? And so now he's saying this stuff. You gotta imagine this is a, well, I mentioned it earlier. When you're at Thanksgiving and your aunt starts saying this, you think she's crazy too. So here now he's talking about Beelzebul. He's talking about some really spiritual stuff and they stand outside and there's so many people in the house. They're just like, what is happening they stand outside and they basically tell some of the people, tell Jesus to come out here. Now I want you to notice this reversal of roles. I don't think they know that they're doing it, just like we don't know it when we're doing it. But Jesus has just called his disciples to himself to be obedient to him just a few verses before. Now his mom and his brothers think they can stand outside the house and call him to back obedient, be obedient to them. He said, Jesus, come on out here. And Jesus will have none of this. He looks to them and says, who are my mother and my brothers? Oh, it's the ones who have responded to my call. Now, this may sound harsh. If you're a mom in the room, you're already like, yes, that is. Okay, if you said that to your son and he decided to say, who are my mother and my brothers and disowned you, you'd be like, oh no, this is the end right here. Your belt's already coming off, you know? Forgot you were wearing yoga pants. You're taking your husband's belt off, you know? 
just ready to get after it. But I want you to understand, this is not as harsh as you think it is. It's direct, but it's an invitation. It's an invitation and a safeguard against the very blasphemy the scribes had been engaged in a few verses earlier. He's saying, hear my invitation to come and sit at my feet. A house divided against itself, Jesus said, cannot stand. And he says to the members of his own household, you must unite, but it is around me. And then he looks to everyone who's in the room at his feet and says, my family. And you got to hear that that's a call to his family to say, come here to my feet as well. Now I want you to know the good news is that's exactly what happens. Where is mother Mary at the cross at the feet of her son? What about his brothers? Well, they become writers of the New Testament, servants of Jesus. They don't call him brother. They call him Lord. You see, this invitation is not just for his own family, but it's for all of us. It's an invitation that calls us even now to draw near to Jesus and to go out. The Spirit calls us today, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And I want you to think about how the Spirit has nudged you. There's no greater gift than the conviction of the Spirit nudging you to come back to God. Now, I understand that it can be difficult. In fact, we can be annoyed by it in our flesh in the same way that we're annoyed by an alarm that's going off telling us to stop the car or the cliff is coming. But aren't we glad when we fall asleep at the wheel and that alarm wakes us up? The Spirit draws us. The Spirit calls to us. C.S. Lewis was wise. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts at us in our pains that God calls us to himself in our pain. That's why it hurts. And I want to end with this thought. You know, it's not just a dire warning, but did you guys pick up on what Jesus said in verse 28? He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. (laughs) We could just preach a whole sermon on that, couldn't we? We could all wrap it up right here. Do you know how Loudly we should shout when we sing if we believe that was true. Every sin Jesus will forgive. All sins. What sins can you say God will not forgive you of? Jesus says none. The only sin is to not come. The only sin is to reject him. The only sin is to finally say I don't want to be with you. And he still calls and he keeps calling. He keeps drawing like a loving Father, he keeps calling you back. And so I pray that it sinks in with you this morning, that it sinks in with us this morning, that Jesus calls us back to his feet and there is nothing that he will not forgive, cleanse us from, wash us. This is the gospel that we've been given. Truly, there is a dark and evil force that has sought constantly to enslave us and Jesus has come and crushed his head under his feet. Can I tell you something? You're a Christian, your sins are forgiven. I'm not saying that because I'm a priest. I'm saying that because Jesus is the high priest and you've decided that he's yours. Isn't that great? Let me pray. Father, I, I don't have enough words in my vocabulary to describe the majesty that you have offered to us. And so I do pray now, Holy Spirit, would you pour out your presence among us? If we have sins we've not brought to you, help us to bring them to your feet. If there be a 
a man or a woman under the sound of my voice who has yet to come inside the house and bow at your feet, may they hear now that there is a room at the cross. There's life here. And I pray now, my God, that as we sing, as we take of your table, that we would see there's much more than just ritual to this, but there is life here. You have died. You have shed your blood. You have risen again and you reign victorious over your kingdom. We thank you, my God, that Satan has no place here because Christ, you are king and Lord of this place. And we thank you that we can be certain of it in Jesus' name. Amen.